a description of the rise of the Antichrist begins in Revelation 13, verse 1, where we're going to read of John standing on the shore on the island of Patmos overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. This inland sea was encompassed, and this is important to note, and I'm beginning to feel it's more important than I ever realized, that the inland sea was encompassed by the nations of the Roman Empire and the nations mentioned in prophecy. Keep that in mind as we read Revelation 13:1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. Uh, I did the best I could with the beast. <laughs> okay, <laughs> You have no idea how hard it is to get all those crowns up there. All right. So what we have here, John is te- giving us a bit of a testimony. And suddenly, John sees a unique and awesome beast rise out of the sea. Before we're going to focus on the beast, we first need to consider the word sea, S-E-A, in order to discover what it represents. This will lead to some of the other conclusions. Some commentators equate the word sea in this passage with the waters that are mentioned in Revelation 17, verse 15. If you just flip to it, it reads, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues. John, giving the illustration, he uses the word in chapter 17, seas, to represent people and nations of the world. All right? However, according to the Greek words, the word for waters in Revelation 17 is a totally different word than the word sea in Revelation 13.1. That says, at least language-wise, those are two different things. Secondly, we find, and some people might say, oh, this isn't significant. I think it is. The word for waters in Revelation 17 is plural. Waters, plural. The word for sea in Revelation 13 is singular. That difference is significant to understand. Thus, and you've probably heard this many times or read it, the common interpretation that the beast comes out of the masses of peoples and nations can't be determined by Revelation 13.1 and Revelation 17, verse 15. Carefully, always watch the scriptures as you compare and interpret. Furthermore, as we go back to 13, we see that the beast rises out of that sea. That word rise is a very interesting word. It means a very gradual coming up out of the sea. Not a sudden appearance, but you, you, know, you see probably the crowns first. All right. So what we see that it's rising up from the sea, and I'm going to show or explain more carefully shortly, it's the Mediterranean Sea, and that's important. Okay. Why the Mediterranean Sea? Well, the old story is hang in. Stay tuned for the next episode here. We'll get to it today. All right. We're going to quickly see, though, that the references in these passages to the sea could refer to only the Mediterranean Sea. 
So it isn't just that John's looking at the Mediterranean, it's going to have effect in terms of the prophetic aspects. Now the Romans are famous for that sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and I tell people when I, I teach or on the radio, I say, well, get a map, please, it helps you a lot, all right, to see the land. The Romans laid claim to the Mediterranean Sea and they named it the Mare Nostrum, or our sea. That's their sea. It's kind of like you saying, that's my little lake. You know? um, this is what they did after they conquered, and really was their first expansion of conquering, Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica in A.D. 30. From that point on, it was called their sea. And that term is still being used today by many in the world. That was really the first step for Rome's ultimate encirclement of this great sea. The Roman Empire ultimately went all the way around and came around to here. So you see the Roman Empire encircled the Mediterranean Sea. Thus to a Roman the only sea was the Mediterranean. Others hold that the sea represents the abyss. Uh, our Bible, depending on translations, you're looking it up, is either we use the word the abyss or bottomless pit. The idea is this is the traditional source of evil and it's the residence of demons, fallen angels. To support that view, they point to Revelation 11:7 which says, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Out of the bottomless pit. 17.8 says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. So what we have here is that the bottomless pit, saying the beast comes from it, and it's speaking of a term that was generally understood in John's day as meaning the place where demons come from, Satan's realm almost. Now, I believe that we can best get the best interpretation for the word by combining the literal Mediterranean Sea with the view of the beast rising up from the residence of evil. And so what we're going to have is something that's got a demonic source behind it. And it has come up and it's going to be tied to the literal Mediterranean Sea in some way. When we do this, John's prophetic vision reveals an evil, satanic beast that gradually comes up from the abyss and its locale in the world is going to be basically around the Mediterranean Sea. The vision symbolizes a satanic kingdom that gradually will rise from the depths of evil. Now, this kingdom this satanic kingdom is a stark contrast to God's final kingdom of righteousness that will not ascend up but will descend from the height of heaven to the earth when Christ comes to defeat the beast 
and establish his righteous kingdom that will start and last for a thousand years and then continue on into eternity. So, the origin of the beast, we're going to say, is tied into the Mediterranean Sea's areas and is uh, down from the satanic world, if you will. And now we want to actually see the true source of his power. Verses 2 and 4 of Revelation 13 read, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered at the beast, after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which, note, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast. John is leaving us no doubt. This dragon is the real source behind the beast. Now, we haven't defined beast yet. So don't run too far ahead, all right? But the dragon is the source. And what I love about the book of Revelation is all symbols and pictures that you don't immediately grasp are explained in the same chapter or in the book of Revelation or elsewhere in John's writings or in the scriptures somewhere. You don't have to start reaching. Just do your homework, all right? So, we look simple. We're in Revelation 13. We just go back to chapter 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon, same dragon John's talking about, and the dragon was cast out. Now, for each person in the audience, that old serpent, oh, called the devil. And, in case you still haven't gotten it, Satan. See, God leaves no doubt. So we immediately see that this source of power for the beast is Satan. He is the motivational power. He is the force behind the beast. And he wants us, God wants us to know where that's come from. Now, his source, that's simple. We've covered it. I want us now to define the beast. What does the Bible mean when it says the beast? Revelation 13, 1 and 2 gives two prime characteristics of this beast. The first characteristic involves, as we see it, seven heads, ten horns, and crowns. And then it speaks of power, his seat, and great authority. When you add those together... Crowns, a seat, the word seat is used, and it's a very common word that means throne in the Bible, if I can pronounce it, throne. And great authority, those are all words that when combined mean the power or rule of a government. All right? As we'll soon see, this governmental characteristic of the beast is going to be reinforced by the use of the heads and by the word horns. So we're going to be speaking of a government here. The second characteristic involves a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Now we're getting a little more picturesque here. The second characteristic, they're all what? Animals. 
Now, these creatures ought to do something for the student of the Bible. You ought to say, where have I seen that before? The book of Daniel. See, God does link them together. You have to go between them. As so often is the case in studying the book of Revelation, one must turn to the book of Daniel to grasp all that God is teaching. So we're going to do a look back to Daniel. Some of this will be review, I understand, but you need to have it so we're all at the same place on this. Daniel began his vision of the beast in the same way that John did, by connecting it with the great See, if you go back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Well, we'll do verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed that he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon what? The great sea. In Daniel's day, there is not a single reference of any writings of that era that doesn't say the great sea is the Mediterranean. So when he writes of the great sea, he is speaking of the Mediterranean, and he ties it in with another fascinating phrase in Scripture. We read that the four winds of heaven caused the Mediterranean sea to churn. See that word strove? That means to stir it up, to churn it, to cause it to almost boil over. Only Daniel and Zechariah used this phrase of the four winds of heaven. Now, Jeremiah and Ezekiel use the phrase four winds. They don't say the four winds of heaven. Those are, that's the only use, in reality, of the four winds and of heaven. Interestingly, in every use, the context is the same. It is the latter-day events that are yet to come. So what we have is the four winds of heaven, if nothing else, could have a label on it, latter-day events, and they're going to be stirring up the sea. Now, in a lexicon defining all these things, and they've spent more time than I have, and I'm going to quote them, they said that the four terms, four winds of heaven, indicates God's providential actions in the affairs of men through angels. Now, I have several references. I'm not going to read them out that all show that. If you need them, you can get them afterwards. So basically what they're concluding is when you see the four winds of heaven, it means that God is stirring something up to accomplish his purpose. And he's doing it, as we look just briefly, we'll find that often the word wind in the Old Testament is translated spirits or angels. So in other words, God is going to be stirring up the Mediterranean area, I'll use that word a little, broaden it a little bit, and uh, through his angelic servants. Based upon this concept, I conclude that these spirits are angels that carry out God's program that is involved with empires encompassing the Mediterranean Sea. Notice I'm stressing that they're encompassing the Mediterranean Sea and that God is causing it. God is ultimately in control. He is sovereign and he will accomplish his purposes. 
Now, additionally, we have to pause and think about the four beasts of Daniel and keep them in mind because John's already linked them and they've also linked the sea. We have four empires of Daniel are represented by beasts that all share common characteristics. And it's those common characteristics that we need to sort of put in our brain and hang on to as we study and look into the Antichrist. These characteristics are always the same. The empires representative, and you can see four empires that are represented from Daniel, they were always connected to the Mediterranean Sea. And they always either controlled, conquered, or influenced the city of Jerusalem. This is why Egypt wasn't mentioned. That's why Assyria wasn't, because Assyria didn't connect to the sea. So what we have here, and I'm going to walk through the four just to show you and get you oriented to the world of John's day. Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem gave the Babylonian Empire its initial access to the sea. The Babylonian Empire was through here. But when they finally moved down to conquer Jerusalem, they now had the whole coast of the Mediterranean Sea. See, before that, they were an inland empire connected only by rivers and when they were it went off that way over to the Persian Gulf so it was only after he conquered Jerusalem that they really moved along and got the Mediterranean Sea the next empire is the Mede-Persian Empire they conquered the Babylonian Empire and they enlarged the access you can see how it's grown they were, they were through here this area, they conquered Babylon, actually they started over here uh, yeah, in Persia and moved this way, they came down here but they kept going and they kept going alright, so you see what's happened, how the empires have grown but their growth is starting to circle the Mediterranean the next empire was Greece's Alexander the Great he came along he had Greece, he came through here and went over and actually goes over here a little further. So it continues the pattern, if you will. And then finally, we have the Roman Empire that now this map maker believed they also got into here. Uh, I'm not debating that. Some don't always show that. But notice they've completely surrounded the Mediterranean. And Rome, as you know, ruled Israel and Jerusalem. So what we have is a, a common characteristic of four empires that God mentions in prophecy in the book of Daniel. And then John refers to the great sea or the sea. And he's going to be talking about, I believe, that Roman Empire. The context of da Daniel 7 not only prophesied that development of the empires, but it also reassures us something that we always need to keep in our mind. And that's Daniel 2.21. God is the God who changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. I would say that end phrase there means to those seeking to understand. If you want to understand prophecy, the Lord will help you if you do your work too. All right. Therefore, I have arrived at a conclusion that the four winds of heaven are God's angelic instruments 
having been having orchestrating the sequence of Mediterranean empires. These four winds went out and stirred leaders to do things. You know, why did the Alexander decide he had to go all the way around? I think God stirs them. Um, the Mediterranean empires he used in his plan. Why? For the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem in the past, and will continue to use in the future. The beast defined. Like John in Revelation 13, Daniel 7 linked the four beasts with the sea. In verse 3 he said, Four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. That's Daniel 7 if you're still there. Verse 3. He says, Four great beasts came up from the sea. And notice it says, diverse one from another. That word means differing from one another. These are four distinct empires. And they represent kingdoms or empires of men, but they shared the same origin because as the same as the beast of Revelation. So all through history, these four developed, and I haven't taught it, but I believe you can show basically the Roman Empire exists even today in a greatly different form, diminished, but it exists. I do not have to jump to Roman Catholicism to show that. I'm talking geographic areas and countries. And, um, so, and also, by the way, this image that Daniel saw was continuous. It didn't have a gap. So somehow the empire just keeps going. Okay. Right into the end times. Four distinct beasts, all the same origin. Also, they came up from where? The sea. If the sea there refers both to the Mediterranean and the abyss, we have this satanic aspect too. When we compare them with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of Daniel chapter 2, we conclude that the same Mediterranean bordering empires are going to be involved with Jerusalem in the latter days, Daniel 2.28. So just so everybody remembers, the first empire was clearly labeled in Scripture in Daniel 2.38 as the Neo-Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar. The second was named in Daniel 8.20, the Mede-Persian Empire. We don't have to speculate at all. The third was the Macedonian or Greek Empire, labeled in Daniel 8.21, and is speaking of Alexander the Great. Now, the fourth is not identified in Scripture by name. Uh, that's obvious, by the way, because in Daniel's day, there was no name for the Romans. There was no Roman country, so... He just left it unidentified, named as a beast. It is presumed by most Bible scholars to be the Roman Empire. And I think there's little argument on that. Certainly not in my mind. The Roman Empire conquered and absorbed all the three previous empires. It's fascinating. I just saw Alexander, I don't know if you realize, when he conquered the Mede-Persian Empire, from that day on he wore Persian clothing. So in a sense, he merely continued at least their styles, and he died and was buried where? Somebody know? Babylon. Daniel 7, verse 12, says, As concerning the rest of the beast, notice, it, it, there's speaking more than one beast. The rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season, a little while, literally, and a time. I believe this is speaking clearly that each... Empire was successive. 
and was absorbed by the previous one. Added support for Rome being the fourth empire is found in Daniel 9.26, where the destruction of Jerusalem is referred to by the people that conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's the Roman army, and they're linked with the future actions of the fourth beast of the tribulation. That's in Daniel 9.26 and 27. Through this succession of man-made empires, Satan has been attempting to achieve his desire to be like the most God. Take a real quick look to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 starts talking about Babylon, but moves on by verse 12. It's going to talk about Lucifer or Satan. How thou art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Notice, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne. He is speaking about his government above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. That's a key term that always means worship, a false religion in this case, of him. So Satan's two goals in existence is to create a worldwide government or empire and to have the world worship him. Why will he do that? Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He is trying to mimic God's plan that will have a final worldwide kingdom, Jesus Christ over it, and a final world worship system of righteous people of Jesus Christ. Satan's do his duplicate to be like the most high. So that's what drives him. That's why all these things are accomplished. In order to accomplish his goal, he must establish a global empire. Why? With Jerusalem as his capital. Why? Because that's where Jesus Christ is going to be. From there, he will receive worship from the peoples of the earth as presenting a false messiah or an antichrist. Four segments of the image of Daniel 2 and the four beasts of Daniel 7 and referred to in 8 symbolize four empires or kingdoms. Despite, though, Satan's attempts to accomplish his goal from them, Jesus Christ will destroy all empires. And he will rise his kingdom. And it is part of God's plan for history. Revelation 11.15 says, The seventh angel sounded... There were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Never forget the end. That's the important part. So, now, based on all of this, I am going to define what I believe the Bible defines. The beast is an empire. Okay, now, many people teach the beast is the Antichrist. We'll talk about that in just a second. I define the beast as an empire that is comprised of a group of national states or territories. That's what an empire is. It's several countries, several states, several nations, under the sovereign power of a single governing authority. I'm not going to define it necessarily a king, but an authority. And you'll see as we progress why that's the case. Of the four beasts of the Bible, they are four empires that are successive empires that will continue to the latter days. Each of those empires 
bordered the Mediterranean Sea at some point of the empire, and each of them either directly or indirectly controlled the city of Jerusalem. So when you read about the beast in Revelation, you are speaking of an empire of nations that is on, connected to the Mediterranean Sea and has a governing body ruling, including it's either direct or indirect over Jerusalem. The prophetic identity of horns actually begins in Daniel 8, verse 3, where Daniel sees a two-horned ram. So over in Daniel 8, Verse 3. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Daniel tells us that these two horns represent, in Daniel 8.20, the kings of Media and Persia, verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, that joint empire. And it was their horns that was the power to conquer, back in verse 4. He says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So what we have here is that these two horns representing this empire or beast conquered and they came together and they conquered north, south, west. They didn't go west because the sea was to the west of them at that point. In Daniel 7, the second beast has also got a duality. Remember, there are two horns on the ram. In Daniel 7, the bear has a duality. One of his shoulders is higher than the other, Daniel 7, 5. Since the Mede-Persian Empire conquered the first beast, the Babylonian Empire, we equate the ram of Daniel 8 and the bear of Daniel 7 as the Mede-Persian Empire because they conquered Babylon. In both instances, the difference between the horns is significant and the two shoulders of the bear. They signify a difference in power, is what I'm going to suggest to you, between the Persians and the Medes. At its beginning, I just like this map, so we had to change because I like the color. At its beginning, the Mede-Persian Empire was composed of two groups of people of Eastern Asia. The Medes were in the Zagros mountain ranges. And the, what we call very casually, the Iranians or the Persians, were actually a group down here in Parsis, a province of that day. Now today we lump a lot of these people together as Persians or Iranians. But initially those were the two powers. And what happened was in the beginning the Medes controlled the empire. If you look at the family tree, it's just really intriguing, something you want to do someday, but you'll find the Medes were in control, but eventually along comes a fellow named King Cyrus who's in your Bible he was of Persian and Mede descent, his mother was Median, his father was a Persian and he learned from both and he maneuvered the power set up 
of this sort of mutual kingdom to his advantage so that the Persians became the true power and actually became a greater power, but never separating from the Medes. Under Cyrus's skillful leadership and God's providence, God even told us of his birth long before it happened, the United Realm became a world of those days spanning empire with the Persians dominating the Medes. The differing size of the two horns portrays the difference in the ruling powers of the empire. In ancient writings, outside of the Bible also, we find the common figurative use of a horn is taken for the image of battling animals always used to denote aggressive strength. The ram's horns are its main strength and frankly it's its only weapon. There is nothing unusual by the way in a ram having two horns. I've seen all kinds of pictures of them. They all had two horns. What is unusual is the asymmetrical nature of the horns in Daniel that makes them significant. The horn used throughout scripture is a universal symbol of armed strength. In Daniel 8.5, we move on to a he-goat. And the he-goat succeeds the ram as the next beast and will represent the Greek empire that overcame the Mede-Persians and they did it one way. In fact, that's a fascinating study too. They did it with their military might. Not like Cyrus, that just used politics and good sense and some clever political tricks. Alexander did it with power alone. And his army was well equipped to do it. And so he achieved it. And in Daniel 8.5 we read, And as I was considering, behold, a hego came up from the west, over here, came up from the west, on the face of the whole earth, touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And he, he wins. Now, Alexander's conquest was so swift that there was expressed by some at the time that his feet never touched the ground, he moved so fast. That fits this book of Daniel's writing that clearly Alexander is a notable horn. Notable, by the way, if you look into its meaning, means conspicuous in appearance. Very clear if it's right in the front. Scripture confirms the identity in eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 21. The rough goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. First king that created the Grecian Empire. That was Alexander. Like the two earlier kingdoms, the empire was involved with Jerusalem and bordered the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you saw that verse real quick, it would seem that the notable horn of the he-goat represents Alexander as an individual instead of his military power. But Daniel 8, verse 7 emphasizes there was no power or strength in the ram to stand before the he-goat. The emphasis of scripture isn't that he was a great king, but he was powerful militarily. So it's the power where the emphasis is and it's the conquering forces and not the individual leader. Daniel 8, 
verse 7 relates that the two broken horns on the head of the ram represent the breaking and destruction of the military power of the Medes and Persians by the notable horn of Alexander. He didn't destroy the Mede Persians. They went under him because he had the strength and he controlled it. In fact, many of them wound up fighting with him as he went further west. The broken horns do not represent its kings, for at the time, by the way, the Mede Empire had only one king, not two kings. So you can't say the horns are two kings, because they only had one king. They only ever had one king, but they had two military forces that remained relatively distinct in their days. The obvious conclusion, then, is that the horns are the political and military strength of an empire. Daniel 7, 7, we are told the fourth kingdom will have ten horns. And verse 24 informs us the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall rise. Another shall rise after them. He shall be diverse from the first. He shall subdue three kings. We need to understand the horns then and the heads. The fourth kingdom of Daniel's prophecy is described as a beast that is dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly. This beast possesses such incredible strength and destructive rage that no animal in God's creation can characterize it. So it's called a beast. Contrasted with the Neo-Babylonian kingdom, that was an image of how many heads? One head, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, he was told. The Grecian Empire is described as having four heads. The fourth kingdom is, says it has seven heads. The fourth, four heads of, of the Greek Empire were four generals that co-ruled simultaneously after Alexander. Therefore, based on this example, and as we'll see as we look at the scenario of the Antichrist, it will become even clearer that the heads not only are the ruling authority, but they are ruling with that authority because they have a military might behind them. They can control the military power as well. So this leads us to a definition for the word head. Therefore, as used in the scriptures prophetically, we see that the head represents an individual who exercises military and governmental power as the decision-making controller over one or more regions or kingdoms all within an empire. As we are reaching the end of this part one, my goal has been for you to understand the key symbols which are absolutely necessary to understand if you are going to really see how the Antichrist will maneuver and move into the position of great power that Satan will enable him to have over the entire world. In part two, we'll look at the actual scenario. So it's very important that you understand what these symbols mean, like beast, crowns, empire, heads, in order to see how the Antichrist rises. So as we conclude this part one, I would like to summarize, if you will, our key terms. Our first key term is beast. A beast represents a specific empire that is composed of a group of states, nations, or territories, all under the sovereign power of a single governing authority. Now, that authority can consist of one ruler, for instance, a dictator, 
or several individuals, kind of like a committee, that could be the authority controlling this empire. Biblically, we know there are four empires that will ultimately culminate in the latter days. They will border the Mediterranean Sea and they will exercise direct or indirect control over the city of Jerusalem. Crowns represent the defined kingdoms or regions that consist of the empire. An empire is a group of states or territories or regions all under the sovereign controlling power of that single governing authority. Horns are the political and military strength of that empire. It's a power that may be shared by more than one people group within the empire. Remember the Medes Persians, the Persians controlled it, but the Medes were very much a power force within the empire. Our final term, head, is an individual who exercises military and governmental power. He is the decision-making controller over one or more regions of an empire. Please keep these terms in mind as we'll now begin part two in which we'll present a scenario showing how the Antichrist rises to power and how he will do it through the means of his military might, his governmental skills, and the power of Satan. So please join us when we bring part two of The Rise of the Antichrist.